Phil's Breakfast Metal, episode 35. I'm doing another one of these by myself, much like the one I did two weeks ago, and in a pretty similar vein to this, this is going to be another one focusing mainly on black metal, because I think just, I've been listening to a lot of black metal over the last month or so, so this has been pretty easy and fun to talk about. Um, whereas the previous episode was focused mainly on the French scene, we're going to be approaching a very different and often much maligned scene of the US black metal scene. I remember something as like a teenager when I was getting into black metal, it was often sort of referred to as as a thing, I don't know how much this is just something that happened in the UK, but that black metal from the US wasn't very good, and it actually put me off looking into it for quite a while. But then when I started discovering stuff like Abzu, Wolves in the Throne Room, etc., I realised that actually this is a, a non, like, pretentious, nonsensical talk that often surrounds black metal. It's a genre of a lot of hyperbole in it, I guess. But yeah, so we're going to jump into four kind of bands with... Some of them have an overlapping connection, but I think all have a very different and unique sound. The first of which is a band I was completely ignorant of until really quite recently, actually. Um, and I think they've, they've been going for absolutely ages, so I, it's totally on me I've missed them. But this is um, Panopticon with their latest double album, The Scars of Man on a Once Nameless Wilderness, Part 1 and 2. This band formed in 2007, this is their seventh album, and they're pretty much uh, a one-man band, the entire like brainchild of multi-instrumentalist and vocalist Austin Lunn. And this album really took me by surprise, because, so, I bought it completely kind of sight unseen of just, I, there was a load of buzz about it, so I just listened to like one random track off it, and it really caught my attention, so I just bought the whole double album with no preamble of what happens on it. So if you've heard about this, you might know that there's kind of a, an interesting choice in the, the second disc of it, but I went into this completely, kind of completely blind. So I'm going to kind of review this in, in terms of the two discs separately, because they are, while they flow into each other and they're very well connected, there's a big difference between the two. Now, the first disc is really just excellent, kind of... It's like kind of Wolves in the Throne Room, Drug, Nurabungit, that kind of um, very atmospheric, melodic, but raw um, black metal, which really evokes a sensation of the wilderness. Like, the wilderness is the big focus of, of this band particularly. And... There's something about that, just the overall sound really is is all about capturing that very natural effect. And like everything, all the performances feel like super real on this. And with all those bands I've just mentioned, like I think that's always been the aim with them. Uh, I think Austin Lund makes no secret of the fact he's hugely influenced by Wolves in the Throne Room. So what we get with Panopticon is a really brilliant kind of sound, especially with this first disc of just very raw black metal. It's all performed by as one guy. They, so you've got the amazingly fast kind of Wolves and Throne style, like super quick, quick drum, and occasional amazing drum fills, but mainly going for that kind of just huge cymbal noise in the background over these very fast-picked guitar riffs, um, high-pitched screaming vocals, but vocals that are, are dropped quite low in the mix. They're definitely, you know, part of the overall sound. And you've also got like a very clear bass presence, and for something that's that's kind of recorded and produced in such a such a raw and realistic manner, um, 
every instrument really gets its part on this. This is actually, I genuinely say it, it's, it's a brilliant sounding recording. Like, I absolutely love how the drums sound on this album. Like, this is, this is like my ideal kind of drum sound for kind of pretty much any band, I think. But I really love this kind of very natural but very clear sound. Like, the kicks have a great position. The mixer don't dominate it or overpower it, but still very clearly there. The snare drum and the toms have this really huge sound to them. And just like the the structure and kind of drum arrangements are really impressive. And then Austin's guitar playing is also absolutely excellent. Like he, for, for a black metal guitarist, actually delves into moments of of brilliant, like really flashy solos. Plenty on like, uh, say, track three, Blattyhem, uh, Blattyman. Which I think one of the highlights from the album is like this really like lurches between these kind of um very melodic engaging lead passages into these great shredding solos and back to more heavy riffing with his kind of like higher pitched screams always somewhere somewhere around in the mix. So the album starts with uh Watch the Lights Fade, which is about a four minute um instrumental interlude, and it's um it sounds like it might even be like a Korean. Oh, actually, I think it's a hurdy gurdy. Well, I assumed there's a, a guest. Uh, there's a couple of guest musicians. So although Austin Lund does um, does pretty much all the instrumental stuff on this album, you also have a couple of guest vocalists. A uh, Tanner uh, Anderson plays hurdy gurdy and Hammer Dulcimer on this. Although I don't know the instruments well enough to tell you where they are versus anything else. And we also have uh, Johan Becker playing violin at some points. And yeah, a lot of cool bits of little backing vocals to and fro. And because it's all in that black metal style, it's pretty hard to tell where um, where particular vocalists are coming in and replacing someone else. As I say, the vocals aren't really in your face or anything like that. Um, so yeah, you have this really gentle interlude of what, what I assume is the hurdy-gurdy and a bit of violin, which is very atmospheric and scene setting eh? I think it's like a slight kind of crackling fire noise in the background I like to say the cover of this album and a lot of the image that goes with the you know the general packaging of it is um like cabins in the woods covered in snow and it, it's really evoking that kind of idea of being out in a cabin in the woods by yourself and then that gives way to the the first like say real track of the album uh Hen Hivit Raven's Dodd um, which is like a 10-minute epic that goes through a lot of phases. You've got some great kind of fast-picking, more-in-your-face black metal into some very melodic stuff. And then, like, these kind of almost folky sort of interludes in the music because Austin's also a very good banjo player and brings in a lot of, like, sort of bluegrass and American country influence on top of the kind of black metal. So this is the thing I kind of wanted to get to this album is what I really like about it is... It's in the vein of those great old Norwegian uh, black metal albums that really evoke something about the country of Norway. There's there's some kind of um, cultural influence of the, the area and even just the landscape around them on the sound. And this is brilliant because it's, rather than being about like the great kind of Norwegian scenery, this is about the vast wilderness of the states and you can kind of hear that coming in and I think embracing like the country influence and so on and just general bits of um, of sound zone that he's added in here just it feels very American and bleak but in an American way there's, there's something really interesting about that and I think this this sets them apart and like even more so than something like Wilson and Roman that 
Panopticon definitely seem to, on this album at least, be carving their own niche in this kind of sound. And then, say, that track is way to Blasiman, which is, I'd say, the, the big catchy epic of the, the first half of the album. But also, on top of that, we have tracks like Sheep in Wolf's Clothing, which are actually quite brutal and aggressive. Um, and then there's, like, an interlude between that, which is has a long-spoken word piece, um, and, like, again, is evoking kind of a the similar atmosphere at the start of it, and it's like violins and so on over it. It's just, it's all super melodic and really engaging. And then we go back into another really heavy number and then back into like a more kind of catchy, um, melodic one with the singing wilderness. And then like, then finally you get the absolutely epic Snowbird and Branches, which is more of a slow burning build of a song. And again, like I'm going to keep referencing them because they're clearly a, big influence on that but it's a slow burn you'd get on a track like um now i lay my bones down among the roots and the rocks by uh waltz in the throne room it, this, it, this is just like so it came out this year on uh bind room recordings and this is just one of the the better examples of the genre i've heard in a while i i was genuinely blown away by this album it's about an hour long but it never feels bloated or over the top Austin is totally not only nailed the playing, like all the performances sound incredible. Like I think the drums are real, but Despolamica completely caught me out on this on the last episode. So possibly they are programmed. If they are though, they sound incredible. It totally works. And just all the other textures going on there. The fact the bass is still cutting through in places, but then you have layers of acoustic guitar, guitar banjo, violin. And these are all melding together to make this incredibly complex and vast sound. It, it's it's a truly impressive release. I really, yeah, was really blown away by just like just the general construction of this. And this is a band I've definitely got to dig into and go back into their older stuff. The, this album is two hours long in total, though. So just doing the research for this, I haven't had time to listen to any, or at least listen in any depth to any of their other ones. I believe like two albums back, uh, they did one called Kentucky, which seems to have huge critical acclaims that'll probably be where I start next. So to give you a feeling of this one, I think I'm gonna play um I think I'll play a bit of the singing wilderness. <laughs>
then we get into the second disc of the album. And this is where I start, like, this really took me by surprise. As I say, I'd done no, um, no looking into this ahead of time. So we get the 12-minute track, The Moss Beneath the Snow, starts. And this completely flows out Snowbird and Branches. Like, you'd barely tell a, a song change. And what happens on this is the drumming suddenly slows down hugely to this, these, like, big occasional kind of snare and cymbal hits. And the guitaring, there's more acoustic guitar and gently layered kind of like violin or acoustic guitar bits over the top. With occasional drops back into kind of more fast tremolo guitar, but still over the kind of um, more mellow drumming. And with like basically no bass at all. And then towards the end of the song, like, we actually get some like quite interesting clean vocals. Very, very bluesy sounding stuff. Like it's not, it's uh, yeah, quite a departure from... The earlier sound. Now this all seemed to be flowing, and I was completely kind of on board, and you know, not say not even surprised by it. It just it just fit perfectly. But then, as this twelve-minute epic comes to a close, we get the, the next track, "The Wandering Ghost," which totally moves into straight-up country with like proper country drum beat. Um, the it's all like mostly banjo, bluegrassy kind of stuff. The vocals. Um, take a kind of I almost say a more upbeat turn although actually the song is a very sad sad story but yeah and then it's it's sort of telling a story of a, a sort of a, a guy someone of the wilderness kind of going to work in a factory and just losing their life to that kind of modern lifestyle and sort of a depressing tale of this but it's just such a kind of it was such a departure, and I couldn't help grinning when it first came on, because I was like, this is just so out of the ordinary for what I was expecting from a black metal album. I don't know where I expected a double-disc black metal album to go for, like, two hours of sort of blasting black metal would be utterly ridiculous, so they'd had to do something different, but I just wasn't quite expecting this. And so the whole rest of this second disc is sort of somewhere between these two tracks, I'd say... The Wandering Ghost is the most leaning into the bluegrass kind of sound, and the Moss Beneath the Snow is one that's far more on the kind of subtle atmospheric end. And we get a lot of tracks that move between the two. There's great variation in instruments as well. You get a lot of cool, like, violin stuff, um, and then some that are just more just acoustic guitar, some that kind of feature a whole band. The thing I would say with it is I don't think the second disc is up to the quality of the first. I think there's a few tracks that are a bit overly long, Four Walls of Bone and Across Abandoned, I both felt dragged a little. Um, and Austin Clean's vocals are, like, fine, but they're not incredible. So, like, a whole hour of, like, it's sort of him leading it like that doesn't work quite as well. It's, to no means say this is bad. Like, so we get um, Track 9, Carrying at the Foot of a Mountain, is incredible. It's like a, this nine-minute epic that slowly builds from gentle acoustic stuff and eventually comes right the way back up to what sounds like the black metal of the start of the album. It's 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 incredible. And like kind of this track and the first track are worth the cost of this disc alone. And I think as an album, I'd highly recommend you go out and buy this. Cause you'll like one of the two discs, most likely. And and even if you're a black metal purist and couldn't give a shit about the kind of change in tone of the second disc. You've got an hour of great music anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Um, the other kind of downside as well is, like, At the Foot of the Mountain is the second to last track. It's this brilliant build to this real crescendo. 
And then we just get like a kind of very mellow banjo uh, led track for the last three minutes of the album. And you're kind of like, like I would have liked an album to finish at a crescendo. I'm definitely one of those people who likes my albums to to stop at a point of like like an epic climax. Um, I don't really need the bonus track, I guess. And I'm sure this is part of the runtime and probably lyrically makes sense to be here. It just, it felt overdoing it. So just the last few points about this before we move on. So Panopticon, they have a brilliant aesthetic um, to their albums. Like, I, I love the, what they've gone for their album covers. It has that thing of like, very much paints them as a black metal band. But if you look them up, like, they also still have a distinctly American feel. Another really interesting thing is the whole album's mastered by Colin Marston, who I'd kind of typecast as having a sound. Like, he's very much the guy who does bands that sound a bit like Gorguts. So, doing such a good job with the sound on this. I know he's only the mastering, but, you know, mastering can add a hell of a lot to an album. That's really interesting. And something I actually forgot to mention in the first half, we get guest vocals from A. Peterson, who... Is a vocalist of a couple of bands, but one I was really fond of called Whirling, who I think only did one album called The Faceless Phenomenon that kind of went completely under the radar, but it was cool kind of like um, virus worship. Uh, so yeah, it's cool, cool him getting like an appearance in here. Um, also, Austin owns a brewing company, which I'm not going to go into too much detail about because I don't live in America, so I'd never get to go there. So I just see that kind of all his cool black metal inspired brews and just get upset I can't try any of them, much like with uh, Chemist's, uh, I believe, Drummer's Brewing Company. But yeah, just to show you the gigantic change in this, I think I'm going to play a bit off of The Wandering Ghost, because it's one of the more extreme sort of change in directions. Could, like, as I say, I'd definitely go look up at the foot of a mountain, because, uh, at the foot of the mountain, because it's incredible, but... And and again, this this whole thing is worth experiencing as a whole. Like the full two hours is really worth it. Uh, I've heard some interesting reviews of it. I think a friend of a friend of a friend described the album as being great black metal that suddenly turned into Nickelback, which was upsetting because it does make you think: Is your musical reference pool so small that um, when you come across something that's not screamed blasting metal? It must be Nickelback. And also, more disturbingly, why does your musical reference to Paul even include Nickelback? Uh, anyway, this is a short clip from The Wandering Ghost. <laughs> Silent stars and the sounds of the whippoorwill. Now it's drifting slowly in search of hope and wealth. Traded in poverty and scenery for money and hell. It's just a young man, still in his prime. Now faceless cog in some old factory line. He's got a fully wallet. He's far from home. Let him drink alone. The years pass by, as they often do. 
graves The winter's blues These memories fade In the pastel hills The mountains and hollers That his childhood knew He died cold one night In a cinder block room Some say that his heart just quit Concrete and steel and the city lights before the first frost. But I knew that, that wasn't it. So, the next band we're covering are a complete change in direction from something like Panopticon. And this is another band where I'm not familiar with their entire discography. They've been going for quite a while, and um, yeah, they've got a lot of albums out. So, I, I know the two we're going to be talking about really well. So, this is the project primarily led by Blake Judd. Um, Possibly the most hated man in metal. We'll get into that at some point in this. But yeah, this is Nakmistium, and we're going to be covering uh, the two albums, Assassins, the Black Metal Part 1, and Addicts, the Black Metal Part 2. Uh, I don't know how much of a departure from the earlier stuff this is. So they formed around 2000, and this is their fourth and fifth album that came out, I think, 2008 and 2010. Uh, I'm not sure. I think the earlier stuff was far more traditional black metal whereas these two albums i found super interesting so i got into assassins particularly when it came out and it really caught me because the sound is so different it's um it's a very modern sound but it kind of borrows heavily from i think kind of like these almost like the post-punk scene and then and also stuff like sort of you know your your new orders and so on where there's a lot of you know great blasting black metal but this band have a real dedication to like the catchy chorus as well and then like long instrumental departures often getting very into the realm of like interesting synthesizer stuff and and even and just like bizarre noises and effects um so this kind of band have an incredible lineup around them um where so Blake was also involved in the in bands like Krieg, who are another staple of the American black metal scene. And then there's the incredible Twilight, who are this like super group of loads of really important people from that area. Um, so we have this amazing crew of extra people working in the background to make this what it is. I think the best way to cover this is to talk about kind of the tracks in order and especially especially the first album because I think it has more of a more of a changeable direction in what what happens on it um and if I go for that in order then I'll cover addicts in kind of piece because there, there is a distinct change between these two but both are fascinating and they're really good to listen to as like a whole continuous piece um so with with assassins we have this kind of great building track of one of these nights, and then that bursts into Assassins, the first proper song. And Assassins gives a really good feel of what's coming up in this album, where it's like, it's very traditional black metal in certain ways. You've got that kind of incredibly fast double kick led drumming, really fast, heavily distorted guitars. And then Blake has these great vocals, which are 
incredibly clean and clear. There's an, like an almost an element of clean singing to his screens. Like he has those kind of screens where you like they're in tune with the music. If you know what I mean, it's 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 a strange way of approaching things. And this is all packaged up in a very modern production. And Assassins has this great kind of great catchy chorus to it. Still, still extreme, still in your face. But then once the kind of the main bulk of the song complete it gives way to this repeating guitar melody and this overarching synth noise and then the drum like this this kind of melody and synth noise builds slowly without too big a change but the drums just get more and more complex in the background where it starts with just a beat just hitting like a snare and a tom and then it just builds up and up and up to faster and faster and then finally gives way into like this kind of statically fade out and then we get Ghosts of Grace, which is what I'd see as, like, I don't know if it ever was, but it's definitely like kind of the single track of the album with this really catchy lead riff in it. Um, and, like, this kind of repeating lead melody that then becomes, like, the chorus of the song. And, like, with it, you get these very anthemic... Um, like, with, with these kind of choruses, you get these anthemic re repeating patterns of just, like two or three kind of weird phrases that will be used over and over again in the song and it's just super memorable and you can imagine live this would definitely be a big sing-along moment and the middle eight of this song is really cool where it just sort of a lot drops out and just gives the drum space to do this kind of like a couple of chords and sort of really awesome drum fill really like chords drum fill chords drum fill until like a, a big snare roll back up into the next part the drums like really focus on doing that kind of like super fast snare roll as a like regularly recurring fill which i really like that in the, this style of song just having something cool and like adding a slight change every couple of bars so it's not this continuous um wall of blast beat there's like really decent changes up and then we get like some of the really interesting moments following this so you have away from the light which is this creepy two minute interlude of like a kind of piano noise and then we then we hit your true enemy which is just much like ghost of grace ghost of grace this kind of aggressive but still super melodic and catchy tune it's really interesting and then you've got code negative which is like basically the seven minute equivalent of the the two minute interlude of this slow building um creepy kind of crawling atmosphere uh, of combining that kind of synthy noise with cool hyper kind of reverbed guitars and eventually building to this like amazing guitar solo just this absolutely brilliant lead style here like i'm not sure exactly who plays what on this i believe blake's credited with lead but then we've got um uh, matt Johan johansson from pharaoh does lead on quite a few tracks and uh jeff seeley of super christ does lead on a couple as well so i'm not sure exactly who's doing what solo but um there's some really cool stuff going on here um then we get omnivore which is pretty like the weakest moment of the album it's just like it's another well, it's, it's easily the most heavy track on the album, but I just it feels a bit more uninspired than some of the others. But then something really strange happens. Like so, the last three tracks of the album are Seasick Part One through Three, and so Seasick Part One is this very strange lilting melody, um, and it's a complete departure from what we've heard before. It's um, it's it's like very mellow. It's it's 
it's totally post-rock. It's complete departure from what we've heard before. And then Seasick Part 2 comes out of this super mellow kind of post-rock bit into this kind of like lead trade-off between soloing guitar and um, saxophone solos played by um, Bruce Lamont of Correction House, which and it, he's absolutely amazing, like saxophone shredding versus these really fast technical but but beautifully melodic leads and then the finally we get part three which is kind of it's still like still in this post-rock vein but then blake's vocals come back in and it's kind of um far more black metal and it kind of ties this whole section back to the start of the album this is just really interesting because it's um it's a very short short album as well it's like only like 40 so minutes but it goes through all these different parts and it's brilliant because it's just no fat on it it's just lots of very unique interesting ideas so i was talking earlier about like there being this kind of whole crew of people working on it um and it's kind of incredible so we have um the main songwriter from krieg wrote the lyrics for part six um for track six sorry um we have Stanford Parker from Buried at Sea and, you know, infinite kind of studio work doing, like, keyboards, effects, production, engineering, and mixing. You have Chris Black, who's someone I'm kind of obsessed with some of his work, and we'll get more to his stuff later, who does keyboards, programming. He actually wrote a lot of the album. Like, it's kind of almost co-wrote by Chris Black, and I think he's had a hot, like, a kind of um, a large part, like... In involvement in this, particularly in the lyric department, I think so. He wrote lyrics for the half the album, and then wrote ghosts. The, wrote the whole track of Ghosts of Grace, um, or uh, co-wrote it. In the, the the credits are very confusing with this because there's so many people involved. Also, the drums are uh, performed by Tony Lorenino of um, Nile fame. He was on um, In the Darkened Shrines, the kind of the drummer who would always be eclipsed by the fact George Goliath later joined. But like this this also speaks to how much this is, you know, Blake's project of there's not a permanent drummer on this album or the next one. Like and he has quite a revolving door lineup of people he's working with. So officially credited as being in the band at this point, you got Jeff Wilson on rhythm guitar and songwriting for tracks five and seven and uh Zion Mega on bass and backing vocals and Will uh, Jeff will make it to the next album, Zion won't. Um, so you do have this, like, if you look up their Metal Archives page, that Mystium had a real kind of revolving door lineup. Um, to show you kind of some of the sounds of this, I think I'll go for a bit of your true enemy.
disc one and two are completely unrelated. Uh, Addicts is definitely a separate release. It's it, you know, although it's the follow up album, it's it's certainly its own thing, but it's not so so different to um, to part one. It's still got a very similar kind of. Uh, group of backing musicians around it so although we've lost the the bass player from the previous album we now have will Lindsay picking up bass and guitars and backing vocals as a permanent member we still have almost exactly the same lineup of other people involved though of like bruce lamont adds some strangely enough actually some backing clean vocals rather than saxophone on this stanford parker still you know at the helm engineering and mixing giving it this incredible unique sound like if you haven't looked up Stanford Parker's work like the man is inc is amazing and you'll probably know what he looks like because he has some spectacular mutton chops and if you've ever seen his face you will remember it also his own band Buried at Sea are incredible I've never checked out Corrections House but as a fan of you know modern extreme bands with saxophone I really do need to get into there and Chris Black is still highly involved doing all sorts of stuff on this the, the other big change is rather than Tony on drums, we have Rest of Leviathan doing uh, drums and percussion. Like, uh, there's definitely a big overlapping career between Rest and uh, Blake. And actually, a lot of these people have appeared on various releases, like, you know, in bands like Krieg and Twilight, etc. Uh, the big difference sound-wise between Addicts and Assassins is Addicts even more leans into that kind of Joy Division kind of end of the sound like the songs become even more anthemic and kind of and rocky it's, it's definitely engaging like kind of that rock and uh, post-punk kind of sound yet really cool stuff like tracks like um, I'd say yeah like No Funeral um, it's, it's, it's this brilliant kind of really heavy cheesy couple of notes on a synth led kind of thing um and it just, but this whole album has this kind of great fist pumping kind of air to it, where the the choruses are so anthemic. Like the the, the opener, high on hate, is a, like something you really want to you know pump your fist and sing along to. And addicts, or equally, has a lot of this. Then we have some more like down tuned, like sadder moments of like the end is eternal, every last drop have just this real darkness to them. And and the lyrical themes of both this album, these albums really deal to like self destruction and unsurprisingly like addiction. Like, um, I think we'll get into a bit more about what Blake's been like around this time. But like, um, it's sort of Blake said in interviews because Chris Black wrote a lot of the lyrics. Chris Black generally came to him with the song "Every Last Drop" and was like, "This song is about you and where you're going if you don't change what you're doing at the moment." Which I think is an incredibly interesting and powerful thing. And I love how sort of Chris Black's involvement is even more obvious on this because you can hear a lot of his clean vocals kind of under Blake's in some of the bigger, more anthemic moments. And the, the kind of combination of the two sounds, like Chris Black has this kind of sort of a higher pitched Lemmy type voice. And then Blake's got it slightly harsher, almost black metal, but sort of almost singing. Like it, it's, it's a very interesting overlap. And I think this will be one of the things that. These vocalists will either sell you on this and you'll love it, or they just won't be for you. I, I can I can understand that putting you off. I would say of the two albums, this was the one that took me a bit longer to get into because it's not so quite so kind of insane and all over the place. It's very like more structured. This is ten quite distinct um, 
more rocky songs whereas the previous one goes through all these interesting movements and for me i i found that very exciting but this is still brilliant and they're both like you know these are a really good set to just play back to back because because the same people are involved um the sound just works so well so if you don't know much about um nat Mysterium's history we should get into this like blake as i said before is one of the most hated people in metal so, um, I've come across a few interviews, and obviously, you know, there's, there's going to be loads of sort of lies and people saying things their way around this. But Blake uh, has been a heroin addict for a while and has gotten in a lot of trouble by regularly scamming fans of the band, scamming labels, like just basically nicking money and selling stuff that doesn't exist. And this has resulted he's done prison time, the band keeps breaking up and having lineup fallouts, and it's it's all a massive mess. Uh, as you can imagine, a band being run by a massive heroin addict would be. So, Blake talking about this, it's the classic, like, I'm sorry, it's hitting so much of America at the moment, and it's really depressing of, he broke his leg in just a freak accident, was prescribed oxycotton and uh when that stopped working he turned to heroin this this is this seems to be the entire source of the, the opioid crisis in america and it's and this is one of the things that makes these two albums like super powerful because you're like oh yeah this is kind of about you like <laughs> this is someone who knows what they're talking about and to say with chris black writing the lyrics for like he can clearly see what's happening and is writing us about a guy he's kind of close friends with it's um it's pretty intense and say we have uh an imperial from krieg wrote lyrics on one of the early albums but he was one of the guys like later called blake out for being like a massive piece of shit and saying like how hard he was to, you know how hard he was to be friends with so this band do have that really messy history and um and certainly I would highly advise against ordering any physical copies of their releases. I think they definitely want to get your stuff free Bandcamp. They still seem to be active. Like They've released a new album this year and they've had on and off albums coming out. I think they've broken up twice since this album's come up and, and reformed again. Um, the, the thing I want to say about this, though, and it probably should come with like, my controversial opinion warning, but whenever you mention that Misty and people will be like, oh yeah, like... Like, I think someone actually commented on this one. I said I was going to do an episode about, like, US black metal, including that Mystium. It's like, oh, well, yeah, there'd be loads to talk about. Like, it's such a kind of controversial figure. But actually, it's really... Like, I guess the interesting thing here is Blake committed the ultimate sin. He fucked over the fans of the band. That's just unacceptable in metal. You know, fans live and die on their fans. If you don't have the interests of your fans, you don't have the backing of your fans, you won't be able to afford to do this. You can't. You can't fuck over a portion of your fan base. And to be honest, it's probably tanked Nacmistium. Like, they'll still perform as a band, but their audience will never be the same. Their sales will never be the same because people fucking hate them now for this. But we, we have guest performances from Rest, from Leviathan on this. Rest has been for prison, like, been to prison for assaulting and attempting to rape his girlfriend. Like, and then we also we have figures like Varg, who. You know, Varg Vigness, no, no, this, obviously, but who, you know, big luminaries in the black metal scene who, you know, we all own Burzum albums. But the guy's an absolute wanker. Like, he is just a garbage human being. 
And seemingly, I know Blake seems to be his ultimate figure of hate for fucking over his fans, more so than these people who've done, like, truly evil things. And as well with Blake is, the guy's addicted to heroin. You don't... <laughs> like, the actions of someone who are, is deep into heroin addiction, they will be to screw over everyone they know to do everything to get money. Not as excuses it, Wade is terrible, and if it means, like... Nakmistium's gonna die because of it, then fair, fair enough. But uh, yeah, I just think it's it's interesting that this is the thing that gets you that much hate, and I think it's an important lesson of like respect your fan base, or this stuff will come to bite you in the ass. But anyway, all that being said, these two arms I think are absolutely incredible. They're really unique. You don't get much that sounds like this in black metal. It's a very original and exciting sound. Uh, they've kind of, if you look at any of the arms post this, they've descended back more close to black metal, which it works. They're still very good albums, but I think these are the really exciting ones where they're engaging this other influence and it keeps keeps things very unique, particularly if you get into like the Seasick trilogy. Like That is a very strange sound I've not heard represented anywhere else. Um, again, to give you a hint of the kind of the more anthemic nature uh, of this album, I think I'll play a bit from uh, the title track, Alex. <laughs> like sound wise i'm trying something a bit different in this episode rather than just having the kind of directionless mic just sat in the middle of the room i'm actually recording straight into the kind of software i use the mixers and it's having the really nice effect of i'm getting to like play the songs back as i'm listening to it and it's making me just feel super into the stuff we're talking i'm talking about this episode really really loving these bands so we're going to move on now to a band that are kind of 
I, I, one I've been quite obsessed with for a while, and I spiritually massively tied to Nacmistium. I will admit right now, I am completely cheating, including them in a black metal episode. They weren't really not a black metal band. But there's something a little black metal about their sound. This is the band Dawnbringer. Um, been around since 1995, unfortunately split up in 2016. And we're going to talk mainly about the fifth album, Nucleus, although I've pro sorry, fourth album, Nucleus, although I probably will touch on their fifth into the layer of the sun god. Um, so this is the project of Chris Black, who we mentioned in the uh, previous, uh, you know, in the previous section, like having a heavy involvement in um, in Nacmistium. But this project is far more rooted in traditional heavy metal. It has a bit of that kind of devil's blood thing about it, where it's kind of a slightly strange take on traditional heavy metal done with very traditional um, gear, like stuff of the, like the bass tone, the guitar tone, the way the drums are recorded. It sounds like it's from the 70s, but something about aesthetic really appeals to black metal people. And I don't know why, like... Is very much tied tied to it in a similar way. Um, so we're talking about um, talking about their album Nucleus, which is probably the first point in their career where they, I think, they started off as a heavier band. Where like Chris, uh, who does most of the instrumentation, um, and like vocals, lyric writing, songwriting, uh, a lot of the production work as well, um, like. This is the first one we started going really in for the clean vocals. Like, uh, this is, again, similarly to some of the later Nacmistium stuff we were talking about, it's very much led by big, catchy, anthemic choruses. But equally, um, there is still a real extremity to it. Um, also mentioned, the, the, the band's lineup is rounded out by Scott Hoffman, who plays rhythm guitar. So Chris Black plays... Um, Drums, bass, vocals, sometimes some guitar, keyboards, and does all the lyrics, all the songwriting. And then there's two guest lead guitarists. We've got Matt Johnson uh, of Pharaoh, who was also on the Nacmist both Nacmistium albums, and Chris Black is also in Pharaoh. And, and also uh, Bill Palco, who is like a, just a long-running session musician for... Uh, Dawnbringer, if he's on near enough every album. And then, again, Stanford Parker with his amazing mutton chops doing engineering and mixing. And the overall sound of these albums are amazing. Like, there's this huge bass tone, the drums, these brilliant driving force, but it's not relying too heavily on super-fast double kicks. They're occasionally employed, like, deployed for just moments of extreme power, but that's not the main thread of it. Like, a lot of the bass and drums are actually... Although Chris is clearly a very gifted musician, very subtle, and mainly just leading to builds, right, it's for the best point to drop these brilliant bits of lead guitaring. And talking of brilliant lead guitaring, um, the album starts off with, like, the first uh, track, So Much For Sleep, has almost three minutes of, like, dueling lead guitar solos over these great riffs before any vocals come in. And... Chris Black's vocals are, again, a little bit of a hard sell. I really like them, but as I said before, they're kind of like this higher-end kind of lemmy of like this very gruff singing voice, but he does a lot of cool stuff by doing these little harmonies with himself. Like, often the vocals are like... Uh, he'll do stuff like double-layering in the chorus with like a much higher backing just to give him a bit of power. 
and so the album starts with with this like sort of amazing dueling lead and then when the vocals come in there's still a lot of that great lead guitar and that kind of really driving bass and drums and then that gives way to the the track you know me which is much shorter like so much for sleep is almost six minute kind of epic you know me is is less than three minutes and just this very catchy very quick like lyrically very minimalist and even quite minimalist on the lead guitar but some quite just a memorable piece and then we got one of the kind of the real interesting moments of the, of the album, track three, The Devil, is this incredible piece where there's moments of kind of clean singing, sort of giving this interesting story in separate sections, but then the interludes are these very weird changeovers. So between You Know Me and The Devil, like it's really hard to tell where these two tracks kind of change, where, where one becomes the other. And then in the centre, there's given way to this this what would normally be you'd imagine be a guitar solo, but uh, it just the guitar is just used to make this kind of bizarre grinding noise, and then and it, the song seems also to be rooted very much in like kind of an old blues kind of ideal, and and so much of the music reflects this. Like the lyrics are this this story of like basically like the deep south kind of interpretation of the devil and then that gives way to the the final conclusion of the song is this brilliant old blues style like old blues lick style fancy lead guitar but it, it's all just got that edge of like extreme metal in there it's a really interesting piece then we get some more kind of uh just standard catchy stuff in the middle of the album with swing hard and cataract and like an earthquake is the big like anthemic kind of rock epic in the middle which is this great thing of having in the kind of the middle eight portion you have the cool guitar solo and then it all descends to kind of quiet and you just get this couple of strums of acoustic guitar and then one really heavy hit on the snare and then everything bursts back up into guitar solo in the final chorus then the album goes the last three tracks of the album we get some really interesting weird ideas and i really like this i i, I think this is the bit that will put people off, possibly, but I think it's amazing. Um, first, after Like an Earthquake, we get All I See. And All I See is this like, kind of... There's just, like, this continuous kind of bass guitar pattern and drums for, like, the whole song. And then just a couple of guitar notes. And over it, Chris Black is doing this kind of, like, American preacher kind of impression where there's no kind of repeating lyrics. It's just him, like like spouting kind of this insane rant uh, like the kind of just this unhinged thing about seeing demons um i'm sorry there is repeating so he keeps saying i see demons it's all i see but like interspersed with these other bits and it's really i, I find this really powerful and it, because of the kind of the very raw kind of real sounding recording as well like it's more of that thing of like the, this character being very up in your face with it i don't, I don't know quite why that works so well but I, I found you know really engaging that um and then that, that just gives way to the most technically proficient ludicrous solo of the album but then the solo just stops dead the entire song stops dead and gives way to the first kind of gentle chords of old wizard which are the most kind of like Old Wizard is a really relaxed, old, bluesy kind of rock song. It kind of evokes kind of the mellower elements of Sabbath. Like, there's certainly a vibe of The Wizard by Sabbath in it. And it's just this cool kind of 
story, but it's it's so it's, it's tinged with like a melancholy as well. Like it's it's just a really great old style rock song, but it definitely moves away from the metal of the rest of the album. And then we have the the closer pendulum is really weird, and it starts and finishes with like this kind of clearly guitar being played. I imagine while someone is like slowly down tuning the strings, which makes this very strange sound. And then the first half of the lyrics are these kind of Chris Black doing his cool harmonies, but the recording's been reversed, so it just makes for a really strange sound. It gives way to a more traditional Dawnbringer song in the middle, but yeah, it's it's all it's just a, this is a really neat package. This album of just nine, I I think all the songs on it are really good. The cover is beautiful. The whole way the album's produced and sounds is amazing. Like the bass guitar tone Chris gets is incredible. I absolutely love it. And you go to one of those those big old uh, Rickenbacker basses, and like it just has a really present and memorable sound to it. But on top of that, like. It's just full of riffs and catchy choruses. It's really quite amazing. Uh, I think from this, I might give a short clip of The Devil. Bye. 
Yeah, so I wonder with that last clip, what you saw, I mean, of like, it's sounding a bit black metal. It's, it's, I don't know where, quite where I'm getting it, but like, there's even like a blast beat in it. So I want to touch on their follow-up album to this, Into the Lair of Sun God a bit. I won't get into too much detail. So this came out two years later in 2012, I think again on Century Media Records with near enough exactly the same lineup. Um, tone of the next album is very, very similar. The big difference between this and Nucleus is Nucleus with a lot of standalone pieces and a lot of lyrical concepts were very interesting. Into the Lair of Sun God I really like because it's a nine-track concept album which really nicely plays with the idea of a concept. And this is the kind of thing I wanted to touch on more with this one. Um, so we get a lot of the very similar elements from the previous album. You've got a lot of these cool like drum and bass driving riffs, like Chris's vocals are still in the same place. But I think this one really taps into um, a lot of what Chris is talking about. I've sort of read in a few interviews of him saying like, he basically felt there was this like little niche of heavy metal that hadn't been covered. And he's come up with this, like with Dawnbringer, I really think he's touched on something that's um, very original, like never quite been done in this way before. There's other bands that sound similar in certain ways, but there's just something about the aesthetic and just the general overall sound that's just that little bit different with Dawnbring, and I really like that. So we're into the layer of Sun God. It's this kind of really cool um, album where this kind of like driven main character who's being antagonised by this kind of... Um, by the, the sun god sort of talking to him and saying how he is nothing and the whole album is the journey of him to prove this this god figure wrong and on the way we get interactions with other characters that this character kind of knows and has some connection with and then it's all brought to an epic and very sad conclusion i won't spoil that is i think it's really fun to kind of go through the journey of this album with it there's just some really cool stuff in it. Like, so Perfect Water starts with this gentle kind of noise of uh, kind of waves on a shore moving back and forth and then gives way into this big, epic rock song. And then this album very much starts in this way. The first four tracks are these proper rock epics with some genius moments in there. Like, uh, particularly Quiet as the Grave has this amazing outro where after this huge song about a, a kind of child sent to war dying on some battlefield we get this kind of um repeating kind of guitar of hidden in the background and then it's kind of drum like, like kind of cutting in and out drum bass groove while in a really low voice uh, you just get the repeating chant of into the lair of the sun god or a little bit of lead kind of playing and out over it it's just an utterly amazing piece of music um there's really cool stuff like in the end of perfect waters this does sound silly, um, but I, I I don't know why I absolutely love this. Where the final lyrics of this is this kind of weird bit of poetry, and I realise after a while what it is is it just this is the song titles to the album. So the lyrics are perfect waters, silence in waves, quiet as the grave, enter darkness, take a deep breath, my destiny is death, and so it is done. I am the one to murder the sun, and it like guess it's kind of nonsensical but it was just such a cool weird little idea and the way it's delivered is incredible it really really works again this will hinge on you liking chris black's vocals he's the lead and only vocalist on this but and again like like the previous album the cover is this really beautiful bit of art again set in this kind of um weird like yellowish ish tone the thing with this album that the previous one doesn't, because the previous one is separate, distinct concepts per song, 
there is a problem later in this where some of the lyrics get in the way of the music being good. So if My Destiny is Death, track six is... Um, it starts really cool. It has these great bursts of like Hammond organ and stuff on it. And it's kind of this really rocky, catchy tune. But then the lyrics are just keep repeating the same phrases. And, and then just a couple of bits of lyrical phrasing are really just don't work at all. Like, you'll have to listen to the song to see what I mean, but there's something about it just doesn't quite work right. And then the, the final problem with it is, like, the last three tracks just aren't anywhere near as exciting as the first four. Um, like, So It Is Done starts in a beautifully heavy way and builds up like it's going to be something massive. And then just not all that much happens. Like, it's quite engaging still, because I, really, I was really enjoying going on along with the lyrics, and it's by no means bad. But, um... Yeah, it just, it just tails off a bit more. And we also have a very interesting moment in track five, which took me years to get my head around, if I'm honest, um, of it suddenly turns into quite a kind of... Well, a very ballady moment. Like, it, 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 and it's nice. It's I really, really do enjoy this track, and I find it quite emotionally powerful now. I've given it time, and I, possibly as well, I'm a bit more grown up now, I think, because back in 2012, I was still very much like... I want everything to sound as extreme as all fuck, or I'm not interested. So, so you know, maybe maybe this will appeal a lot more to listeners who have kind of a lighter taste in in a lot of stuff, or just can appreciate good emotional depth. Like Enter Darkness as well has some really beautiful emotive moments. But what I'd say, if you enjoyed Nucleus, I would highly advise buying Into the Lair of the Sun God, and I, I highly advise giving both of them a, lit, a listen. But I do think Into the Lair of the Sun God is definitely the weaker of the two. Of their previous albums, a lot of the early stuff sounds really good. I've not been able to get my head around anything they've released since as a series of EPs and other stuff that kind of build up to the end of their career. And yeah, I've never quite got into stuff like Night of the Hammer in the same way as I did. These two albums I properly obsessed over, particularly like certain tracks I really loved. Um, but if you if you really like what Chris Black does, he is in a million and one projects. I'm not going to list all the stuff because I... If I'm perfectly honest, I don't know a lot of them that well. I think to fully know Chris Black's discography, yeah, you would have to dedicate your time to it in the way that, like, say, some Devon Townsend fans dedicate themselves to him. And and I imagine it's, it's almost got that, you know, Frank Zappa finger. There's so many different myriad projects. You could never really like all of it. Uh, there's too many styles going on at once there. But yeah, just so you just, you know... I think because I found it such a powerful piece, I'm going to show a bit of the end of Quiet as the Grave, because hopefully I'll convince you that there's some really good stuff on this album.
final band I wanted to cover today, and this is very much, you know, the daddies of um, American black metal. We're going to be covering the legendary band Abzu. So Abzu were formed 1999, 1999? 1991, um, and we'll be covering their fourth of six albums and probably their most famous or at least most revered album, Tara, from 2001 on Osmo's production. Now, Abzu are mainly the project of drummer and vocalist and main lyricist and songwriter Prescriptor McGovern, who is this super talented kind of amazingly complex drummer but he also if you've seen any live videos or know know anything much about his band is the thing he's really interesting for is he also does vocals at the same time on this particular album we have um Shaftiel uh who had been I think the project for a while this this stage on guitars electric and acoustic vocals bass and songwriting for a lot of the tracks and then uh Equitant Ifernane on bass and also adding some lyrics to this. So, Tara is the continuation of the six uh, Absu albums and their two trilogies. Uh, the first trilogy is essentially the first three albums and Tara is the kind of conclusion to this. I won't delve too much into the kind of concepts behind them because honestly, they go a bit over my head. Uh, Prescriptor is like really into... Um, occult themes, uh, magic, um, and it's, I think a lot of like Mesopotamian and Sumerian mythology. Um, he refers to his, his brand of black metal as mythical occult metal, which is cool, you know, it's, <laughs> if you ever need another descriptor, there's, there's one for you. Um, I think I'm more going to dwell on the general sound of this album, because I think it's got a fantastically unique voice in black metal absolutely they, they don't really sound like another band and i think a lot of that has to do with prescriptors cr like crazily vast influence pool like i saw in an interview recently and sort of discussing it's like oh well we take influence from say black thrash death traditional heavy metal and progressive music among other things and you're like yeah this this kind of shows in it so the songs rather than being that kind of very atmospheric long drawn out pieces these really fast like four minutes bursts of incredible kind of black and fresh fury but then the drums I, I think prescriptor is very influenced by you know great prog drummers of like um billy cobham or you know lenny white that, that kind of amazingly complex drummer who you know never even seems to be holding the beat it's just it's super fast drum fills like flying around a really complex kit which he still somehow does with while producing vocals like and his vocal style is this very um very high scratchy kind of black metal scream kind of slightly reminiscent of an american abath um not, not identical, but there's certainly a bit of that in there. And then, like, a kind of sprinkling of uh, clean vocals throughout as well. Like, really slight and, and clean in that kind of... Well, it's not screaming. It's not necessarily, obviously, clean singing. And the, the kind of general sound of the music, the guitars have that much thinner, old-school black metal sound. Um, and it, it really lends it to that kind of proto-thrash vibe as well. You get you get a real feel of like early destruction and Sodom, that kind of horrible, aggressive noise. But then imagine destruction and Sodom, but the drums are just complete 
fury, complete madness. Now the open the album art opens with uh, the instrumental Tara, which is just this uh, just bagpipes, like a a long two minute bagpipe intro, which really sets a, a kind of cool feel for it but then that suddenly gives way to the opener pillars of mercy which just explodes in like black and fury like the drums just start straight into like a kind of pile of different fills the guitars hit a full force with this absolutely shredding guitar solo um it's really really over the top and in your face um and then like when Prescriptor's vocals come in, it just adds to all of this. Like, the thing this does have, because it's, it's that older older brand of black metal, it's definitely got a real um, a real worship for that kind of, you know, the classics of the second wave of black metal. But I think particularly, like, early Immortal albums, like, I think there's a lot of evoking of that and just the kind of sheer chaos and pace of this. But the other thing it has is it's still really catchy, like... Most the most of the songs have like memorable chorus lines, like "Pillars of Mercy," as I was talking about. You you really know when he's shouting "Pillars of Mercy." That that's this really awesome, catchy moment. Uh, yeah, it, it's a furious, aggressive album, but there are kind of handholds in it. It might it's not an album I'd use to get people into black metal. I think this is something that needs to be built up for, like Prescriptor's vocals, much like Abaf, as I mentioned before, like. They put a lot of people off because they are kind of funny in places. And the whole kind of occult lyrical concepts, although deadly serious, like Prescriptor is very, very deeply into the the magic and mytholo mythological stuff he's talking about. Like, he's clearly, clearly experimented with a lot of chaos magic and a lot of different magic schools. Again, I'm not going to go into too much detail because I've read plenty of interviews with him before and I still have no idea what he's talking about. For the virtual follow-up for this um, a few years later, the self-titled Abzu, he added a glossary to the lyric book because people have been like, your lyrics look really interesting but I've got no idea what any of it's about. So he added a glossary of like all the words and concepts he's talking about. Which in a way is really cool and and it, it proves this isn't like an act or anything. This is a man like really driven by what he's doing. But it does result in some stuff being really funny. Like, you have to look up some of their song titles. I won't be able to do them justice. But, say, for example, the single uh, Mana Mana or something like that. It's just a long series of M's, A's and N's. Uh, when he, shout, he shouts, I assume it's the actual song title, but it just sounds like Manunu. And he just shouts that really loudly throughout the chorus. And that is inherently quite funny. But it's also really, really catchy. And there's a lot of cool stuff going on with Abzu aesthetically as well. Let's say cool. Utterly ridiculous. But I kind of love it. Abzu are one of my favourite bands for looking up band photos of because they're all ridiculous. They, they eschewed corpse paint for a long time and said painted their faces silver. Um, which just looks really, really silly. And there's just so many of them wearing weird bits of mismatching spikes and so on pulling ridiculous poses and mountain ranges it's, it's just really good stuff like I, I like my black metal being slightly ridiculous at times like I, I feel it really works with it um but this album is incredibly engaging it's about 15 minutes long and it's catchy as hell start to finish and there's lots of great changes in pace um and sort of, you know, weird interlude bits. There's bits of layered keyboards and acoustic guitar. Like, there's a fair few guests on this. Um, 
and we get some like right at the end of the album some beautiful high-pitched uh clean vocals on the epic eight minute closer stone of destiny um and then uh, as i say as closer we do get another two minute outro of more bagpipes which I, yeah i think a really good kind of um topping and tailing of the album although if you're the kind of person who can't deal with the kind of unrelated intro this is definitely the unrelated intro like the bagpipes stop and then the blasting starts and then the blasting stops and the bagpipes start again it's uh it's all quite all over the place there's also a really cool um i guess vocals from melakesh's uh vocalist because prescriptor was heavily involved in melakesh he did drums and some vocals for two of their albums and also, sadly, the project kind of came to a close for quite a while after this album came out because Prescriptor fell off a ladder and, like, seriously damaged his hand. And at the same time, the lineup sort of imploded. So the, the band stopped for a while and then they reformed and eventually came out with their follow-up to this, the self-titled Absu, spelled A-B-S-U, um, which is a brilliant album. I'd say not quite as good as this, but it's kind of... It's got less of the raw production. It's more, um, it's more tailored for somebody who's like newer to black metal. I'd definitely say, and it more leans into the kind of the prog influences um, Prescriptor has, and I think that's really, really helpful with this. Um, and then there's there's two more follows up uh, follow ups to that, uh, all called Absu. So you've got Absu spelt with an S, Absu spelt with a Z, and then Absu spelt A P S U which apparently they're all different mythological spellings of the word. Like Abzu something from Sumerian mythology, I forget what. Um, I only know about it because someone had the genius idea of naming a system at work after it, which is just because they felt the acronym was useful, I didn't Google it. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I would highly recommend this. I think this is a real gem of that early wave of like American black metal. And I think the projects still have some really um, interesting stuff going on, although I do think this kind of middle period of this and then the follow-up uh, Abzu are the real, real highlights of it. Live, they're an interesting band as well. Like, um, although often behind the drum kit, uh, Prescriptor has a real incredible stage presence. Like, it's completely ridiculous, completely over the top, but it's it's pretty amazing to look at and also another like interesting bit of absolute trivia uh prescription addition to uh playing slayer before shortly before dave lombardo's return whenever that was but you can actually look up the the videos of him and kerry king playing a few for a few of their songs and <laughs> he pretty clearly didn't get it because he ended up speeding up loads of the songs and adding in loads of additional drum fills. But it's really fun to look at that interpretation of a Slayer song. I actually wouldn't mind, like, Slayer must be the most covered band in, like, if you've got a lot of death metal albums, the amount of covers of, like, mandatory suicide I have. I wouldn't mind hearing an Absu, uh, an Absu-based cover of a Slayer song. That'd be really interesting. But yeah, they're definitely a really interesting package. And also... I might share some of these later because in researching this, I've looked up quite a few video in interviews of Absu and watching people try and comprehend Prescriptor going off on one about magic and chaos Gnosticism and uh, why he considers himself a mythological occult metal band, not a black metal band, is utterly fascinating. Um, probably won't go into much more on this. This album is just undeniably brilliant. You just got to listen to a bit of it and you'll get it or you won't i guess um so yeah all that's left to say is uh yeah please 
get in touch. Uh, I'm pretty mainly active on the Facebook page, uh, Phil's Breakfast Metal, but I'm also on Twitter at uh, Breakfast Metal, or you can get us on email at uh, philsbreakfastmetal at gmail.com. Um, please like rate and review us on iTunes as well. It'd be great to get a star rating on there. But also just hit me up on any of those formats. Just let me know if you think me doing these episodes by myself as kind of a stopgap scene when I get Rob or other guests on is any good. Do you listen to them? Are, are they of any interest at all? If you're not listening, you probably didn't get this far, but that's fine. Um, cool. So I'll leave you a bit of Pillars of Mercy. <laughs>